This evening's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you're worshiping with us tonight. We are finishing up First Peter, which we have been in this entire semester. Uh, next week, we will have our final service of the year here at Grace Downtown, as we'll take a couple weeks off for the holidays. And next Sunday, we will have a special Christmas service. We'll have a Christmas story for kids. We will have Christmas hymns and carols, and we will talk about what it means that we have a living hope, and we'll talk about when a living hope was born. But this week, we finish up formally our uh, series through First Peter. We finish out chapter 5 here, as we have been looking at what a life looks like that has a living hope based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, after the service tonight, we want to invite you to stick around. We are going to have some cookies. Uh, before the service even started, we already had, like, plenty of cookies, so now we have plenty and plenty of cookies the Lord has provided abundantly. Praise God. So um, stick around, get to know some folks, and also um, have some cookies with us. There are plenty. We also have some to-go boxes, so you can take some home with you or to folks that are not here tonight. Also want to let you know about our series that we will kick off in the new year. We are going to go through a series where we go through the Old Testament, and we are taking a look at living stones— from the Old Testament. The First Peter series has talked about what it means to be a living stone and how we are being built up as God's people, as living stones. Well, we are going to take a look at what it means to be a living stone. And as we look at these different Bible characters, these patriarchs, uh, many more characters that aren't on the, the screen there throughout the Old Testament, we are going to see the faithfulness of our God that he would take people like them and people like us and use them for something great. So we're going to go through the Old Testament, specifically Genesis and Exodus, where we'll take a look at different characters and narratives from the Old Testament and look at the application for us as the church today. So that is where we're headed next year. We'll, as I said, we'll take a couple of weeks off. Uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day are on Sundays, and we're going to not have service those weeks so you can worship and be with friends and family. And then we'll be back here January 8th to kick off that series. In this series in First Peter, we have mostly looked at an external life, what, what it looks like to have a living hope externally. Meaning, what's going on in our relationships, what's going on in the workplace, what it looks like to uh, interact with politics, we've looked at marriage, we've looked at as we're suffering, we've looked at outside persecution against us and how we deal with that, and we've been looking at what a living hope looks like in these different external situations. But here as we wrap up the book, Peter talks about what's going on internally, 
in our soul, in our minds, in our lives, when we face suffering. And he wants to help us understand the inner workings of our own heart. And in order to do that, he actually peels back the curtain of eternity and shows us what's going on with an eternal view and with a spiritual view. So that's where we're headed tonight. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to open your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that it's living and active. God, we pray that it would do its work tonight, that it would encourage where we need encouragement, that it would exhort where we need exhortation, that it would admonish where we need humbled and when we need truth spoken to us. God, we pray that each one of us would hear what you would have for us tonight and we would walk away with a living hope. Father, thank you for what you've already done in this series, and we pray that as we wrap it up here, you would continue to do your work as we look to be your church, your people, a spiritual house being built up of living stones, built on the foundation of Jesus, our living God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 5, where we ended last week, because Peter continues his thought from verse 5 to verse 6. So we'll start in verse 5. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So looking back at last week, we talked about what it means to clothe ourselves with humility. He means literally gird your mind with humility. Prepare your mind, fix your mind, put on your mind, think with your mind about humility. Prepare yourself to think humbly. Prepare yourself to think through the mental battles of life with humility. And then he says God is in opposition to the proud. Opposition. God opposes the proud. There's four places in scripture that it says this, that God opposes the proud. And we need to ask the question, why? Why does God oppose the proud? The reason is the only one whom God cannot save or help is the one who thinks they do not need help. I am not a lifeguard. I have never been a lifeguard, but I have heard how they train lifeguards, and I know some of the dangers that lifeguards face. If a lifeguard is trying to save someone who is drowning in the deep end of the pool, it could be a very small child, but if that child is flailing about and fighting against the lifeguard, there's nothing that lifeguard can do to save them. They might as well weigh 300 pounds and be difficult to save because they're just fighting against the lifeguard as they come at them. But likewise, a very small lifeguard can save a 300-pound person if that 300-pound person gives up. If they lay lifeless and just let the lifeguard take them to shore, they can be saved. Very similarly, when we fight against God, when we don't think we need God, when we are walking in pride, when we have, instead of girding our mind with humility, we have girded it with pride. When we have pride, we don't even see God is in opposition to us because he can't help us, because we don't think we need help. 
That's why the Proverbs tell us God opposes the proud. And it also tells us that the proud man says in his heart, there is no God. In our pride, we say, I don't need God. I can take care of it on my own. So God is in opposition to our pride. So then he continues his thought in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we've learned throughout this series and throughout learning what it means to be a good Bible reader, a good Bible studier, that when we see the word therefore, the author is talking to something that has come before. It says, humble yourselves, therefore. So what is the therefore, therefore? The therefore is pointing us back to the fact that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter is pointing out the two realities of what it means that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This passage is telling us what the whole Bible says from beginning to end. This passage is telling us that either God is for you or he is against you. That's the clear teaching of scripture, the the true reality of what life is like. God is either for you 100% or he is against you. We don't normally think that way, but that's clearly what the Bible is teaching us. The reason is for God to be loving, he must also be against sin, death, our enemy, the devil. He must be against all injustice. And so if we are for those things, then he is against us. He opposes our pride. He is opposed to our sin. He is opposed to the things of our enemy. He is opposed to any injustice that we do. So God opposes that pride and the fruit that comes from that heart of pride. But he says that he gives grace to the humble. He says here, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. He is connecting humbling ourselves to being under God's mighty hand. Being under God's mighty hand should terrify us if he is against us. If we are walking in pride, if we are walking in unrepentant sin, if we are walking in a life of injustice, then being under God's mighty hand is not good news. That's not good news. But here he is encouraging the church. Let's remember back to chapter one. Who is this book addressed to? The elect exiles, the elect, those who are in Christ, those who do know the love of God, those who are in walking in humility because they are walking in repentance because they are in Christ. So being under God's mighty hand should humble us and it should put us in a posture of worship. To be under the mighty hand of God for the believer is actually good news. I went, (laughs) I almost said grocery shopping. That's not nearly as terrifying as what I actually did. I went Christmas shopping with my children. 
And not only that, I went to one of these stores where everything is under a certain amount of money. And so there's lots of things that they can put their hands on. And the most terrifying part is that we were not shopping for them. They had to pick out gifts for other people. They found lots of things that they liked. It was much harder to pick out gifts for other people, but they did find what they liked. So we were at the mall and the mall a parking lot this time of year, another terrifying thing and terrifying experience. We have taught our kids from a very young age that when they are a, a certain age, if they are young, basically under the age of 10, that they don't go anywhere in a parking lot without our hand. And in fact, they know at Nathan, who's six, our youngest age, they know that when they get out of the car, they need to stand on the yellow line in between the cars. They get out of the car, they stand on the yellow line, they wait for us to grab their hand, and then we walk them into the store. And we've taught them that is safe. We want you to be safe. We love you. So we want you to stand there. So I park the minivan. The kids pile out of the car. I'm about to reach for Nathan's hand. Make sure he's standing there. And I say, oh, shoot, my wallet. So I reach in and get my wallet. And out of the corner of my eye, I see the older three boys just fly across the parking lot. I'm like, oh, no. I hope Nathan did not follow them. I grab my wallet, I turn around, and the first thing I see is Nathan's hand holding up like this, just waiting for me to take his hand. He knows that being under the mighty hand of dad, <laughs> for what it's worth, <laughs> at least my hand, him holding my hand is safety safety. It trumped every other thing in that moment for him. Running into the store with all the candy, following his older brothers, it trumped everything else. He needed the mighty hand of dad to cross the parking lot. We humble ourselves because God's mighty hand is there. And if we are in Christ, that mighty hand is for us delivering us through all things. And because of this, at the proper time, we'll, we will be exalted. And we can cast all of our anxieties on him. This word casting means throwing or giving away. We cast our anxieties, our worries upon him because he cares for us. Instead of crossing the parking lot metaphorically by ourselves, we reach out our hand and we receive help from God because he gives grace to the humble. We cast our anxieties and our worries upon him. We reach out and grab his hand for help because he is powerful. He can do something about our anxiety. And we're told here that he cares for us. This verse would be unhelpful if it just says God can help you, but he doesn't care. Or good luck, he, he can help you, but he may not care at that particular moment. It would also not be as helpful if this verse said God cares for you, but he can't really do anything about it. He wishes he could help you, but he's busy. Here we are being told that we can cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He has a mighty hand. He's ready to help us. And he cares for us. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This word, be sober-minded, it literally just means don't be drunk. Don't be drunk in your mind. What happens when you're drunk in your mind? A couple of things take place. You can do stupid things, but more poignantly here, you're just slow-minded. Your mind and your body are not moving at the same speed. You think, oh, I should do that, and then there's like a, a lag or a delay on taking action on that thing. Peter is saying, Because of what I'm teaching you here, don't be slow-minded. Be sober-minded. Remember, gird your mind with humility. Think through all the times in 1 Peter we have been told to think this way with our mind. Set your hope fully on him. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. This is a theme throughout this whole book. Being aware of what we are thinking about. Be aware, be alert. And why should we be aware and be alert? Because we have an adversary. He describes our adversary. First, we have to realize what he's called. He's called our adversary. He is against us. There is an enemy, the devil, who is against God's people. One of the most common names for him, particularly in the Old Testament, is accuser. He's accusing us. He's against us. He's pointing out our sin. We're told that this adversary is the devil, the enemy of God and his people from the beginning. And in his very nature, he is proud. And so we're being told here he keys in and feeds any pride that we have. We're then told that this adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion. This is not how we typically think of him. We don't think of him being on the prowl. A lion prowls when it is looking for something to kill prowling around like a roaring lion, I typically either do not think of the devil or I think of him as being an annoying animal. One that just kind of chucks things at me once in a while or won't go away when I'm trying to eat my food. No, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. There is also a connection being made here by Peter in this letter of 1 Peter that The Bible makes this connection in other places as well. When Satan is called the accuser, he is also called the persecutor. And here we have seen that the primary suffering that God's people are suffering from in this time period and these elect exiles is they are being persecuted, marginalized, slandered for their faith. Here, Peter is saying that behind all of that is an enemy. And it's not primarily the humans that are persecuting you. It's God's enemy from the beginning. He's using those human agents to persecute you. This is the kind of persecution, the kind of suffering they are enduring. And because of that suffering, Peter is saying, you need to stay humble. 
instead of being proud. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. He tells them, because you have an adversary, the devil, who prowls like a roaring lion, you need to resist him firm in your faith. So this passage is laying out for us a life that is open to the things of God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we're reaching out for help to God, but we are resisting the devil. If we are not sober-minded, we do the opposite. We help out the devil, we give him lots to work with, and we resist what God is trying to do. But he says here, resist him by standing firm in the faith. Firm in the faith. We'll go back to that in just a moment. Then he connects them to the larger body of what God is doing in his body, the church. He says that you knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This means throughout the known world. This probably means everyone outside of Rome. Remember, this is to the elect exiles. Peter is saying everyone else outside of Rome, the whole church is suffering in a similar fashion and you are connected to them. And why is the brotherhood throughout the world suffering? Because at the end of this uh, letter, go down to verse 13. It's after this passage we're talking about tonight. It's in kind of the signature. He says this phrase in verse 13, she who is at Babylon... The she he is talking about is most likely the church. The church is often personified as the bride of Christ. So when he speaks of she, he is most likely talking about the whole church of God, the church throughout the world. And it says also that the people, the church that is in Babylon sends you greetings. When he says Babylon, he is referring to the Roman Empire. The reason he calls them Babylon is because Babylon in the Old Testament is where God's people were exiled. They sinned against God, they were scattered, and they were exiled in Babylon. And Babylon was the most godless, pagan place that you can imagine. It was a world power. They did not worship God. And God's people were exiled by the Babylonians. He is saying that the church of God is being persecuted. That main persecution is coming from our enemy, the devil, but he is using the forces of Babylon, of Rome, to send God's peoples out, to persecute God's people. And as we've been talking about through this series, it just keeps getting worse for God's people throughout the first century. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter has one final thing to say to them about their suffering. He's had a lot to say about their suffering, but he has one final thing to say. And what he says to them is that suffering is always temporary. Suffering is always temporary. He means two things by this. We've talked about it a little bit as we've talked about suffering in 1 Peter. It is always temporary in that when we are suffering, we feel like, is it going to be like this forever? 
Is it going to be like this forever? It feels like it's been forever. It feels like it's going to be forever. And then in retrospect, once we're delivered from that suffering, we look back and say, that was temporary. That controlled my life. That controlled my emotions. That dictated the way a lot of my life went, but it was for a season. And now in retrospect, I see it was temporary. So that's one thing that he means. The second thing he means is for those that don't get a relief in this life from that suffering. Because some people don't. Because for whatever reason, because of God's sovereign knowledge and care for us, he doesn't always remove that suffering in this life. In fact, Peter is preparing the church through divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit to face even worse persecution before most of these readers will die. Many of them will be martyred for their faith. For them and for those that chronically suffer to the end of their life or their life is cut short, suffering is still temporary. How can that be? Well, he puts the contrast here between temporary and eternal. What does he say? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. All suffering can be temporary. All suffering is temporary because of the eternal glory that we get by being in Christ. Someday, On the other side of glory, when we are fully in the presence of Christ, we will look back at these momentary troubles and say that suffering, though intense, was temporary. And now we experience an eternal glory. We're told to stand firm in the faith. When he says stand firm in the faith, he means stand firm, not in what we can do, but what in God has done for us. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself four things. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First, restore he will restore what we cannot restore on our own. He will restore joy. He will restore relationships. He will restore our earthly bodies. He will restore what doesn't seem like it can be redeemed in any other way. He will confirm. He will confirm. There are people that are reading this letter that will stand before those that will kill them, and they will be told to renounce Christ. If they stand firm to the end, if they stand firm in Christ, even if their earthly body is taken, they will be ushered into the presence of their king and they will be confirmed that they did the right thing, that they are in Christ. And they will experience and receive an eternal glory that will outweigh that temporary suffering even if it leads to their death. He will strengthen us for what he's given us to do today. And finally, he will establish you. How can he establish us? Because he has the dominion. Rome thought they had the dominion. 
even those that lived outside of Rome and, or who, who were persecuted by Rome thought that Rome had the dominion, that they ruled all, that it was Caesar's face on the money. But here, Peter wants to remind the church that it is Christ who has the dominion both now and forever. Amen. So what does this mean for the church? What does it mean for us? First, we need to fight anxiety with humility. Fight anxiety with humility. This is a concept that we do not put together, but Peter, it most definitely is here. I want to say clearly that not all of anxiety is due to pride. We can have anxiety for lots of reasons. I have anxiety for lots of reasons. We also have to acknowledge that pride can be involved in everything that we do. And often we are anxious because we think we have to figure everything out. The elect exiles that are receiving this letter had plenty to be anxious about. They were exiles, so they were driven out from where they were from. They're being slandered. They're being persecuted. They're starting to be imprisoned, martyred. They're seeing the church further scattered. They have plenty to be anxious about. And Peter is telling them, don't take pride in what you can do or you won't stand But instead, cast your anxieties on him and stand firm in your faith. Today, we have plenty to be anxious about. We have plenty to be anxious about. We're going to talk more about this next week. But there's something that one author called the myth of progress that plagues our society today. Sounds real cheery for a Christmas message. Come back next week. The myth of progress says you have everything you need to be successful and happy. Then we're haunted with the reality that we're not. We're not. By all measures, this is the most anxious generation that has ever lived. And it's because we have everything that we need and we're still not happy. And it's freaking us out. We have every opportunity. So much at our disposal. So many things, so many technologies, so much education, so many resources that we can utilize. And we just keep getting more things and yet it doesn't make us happy. The reality is what Peter is telling us is that the devil, Nero, the Roman Empire cannot defeat the church but pride can. We need to cast our anxieties on him and recognize we don't have what it takes to be successful, joyful, happy. We need to stand firm in our faith. We need to identify pride in our life. That's the first grace we need. I just keep finding more pride that I didn't even know I had. First, we need the grace to recognize it because I didn't feel like a proud person. I didn't feel like a person that thought they were capable of things. In fact, I felt the opposite. And I had to realize that that was a form of pride. We need to identify pride and then we need to fight against our pride. And let God humble us because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Second, we are siblings. 
Verse 9, he says the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then he ends the letter in verse 14 by saying, greet one another with the kiss of love. I met a, I have a friend um, that I met um, that lives in Illinois, and he grew up in a church that obeyed this verse. So you kissed each other when you saw each other at church. Men to men, it didn't matter. You, they kissed one another growing up. They had some other weird beliefs too. That's not what Peter is saying. What he is telling them is you are siblings. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, he's using familial language, which he does often in First Peter. He's using familial language and he's saying, greet one another with whatever is culturally appropriate in your culture for brothers and sisters who are in Christ to greet one another. This is what God has privileged us with. This is what God has called us to, to be a part of a spiritual family. And if we are in Christ and his spirit is in us, we have something in common that we may not have in common with people that we share blood with. The love we have for one another will show the world that we are his disciples. The love that we have for one another will show that we have a living hope. You guys love each other really well. You really do. And when people tell me why they go here or why they keep coming here, it's always about you. It's always about how they've been loved well. Sometimes they'll even have another criticism, like that preacher's not so great, but I feel loved at this church. I, I hear that constantly from people that just, I ask them, why do you go to grace or why do you still go to grace? It's because I felt loved. Let's continue on still more to know what it means to love one another. Something that we learned during the pandemic, which felt really awkward in the time, but I think we learned from things, something from it, is we actually had to ask each other if we were okay with like not giving six feet of distance. Are you okay with hugging? There had to be communication around like physical space and physical touch. Let's bring that back. I think that's awesome because I think a lot of times we just avoid any of it because we don't want to be awkward or we don't know people's preferences. Just ask. When I give people their membership letter, we hand deliver people's membership letter when they're new members of the church. I ask people, would you like a high five, a fist bump, a hug, side hug? What kind of, what are we going to do here? I just throw it out there and it's super awkward, but then it ends up being really great. Peter is encouraging us and reminding us that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we have a living hope. So let's act like it in the way we greet one another, in the way we love one another, in the way we show hospitality to one another. Third, the devil is involved in everything. He's involved in the actions of Babylon, in the Roman Empire, in any injustice, in our pride, in our anxiety. The enemy sees an opportunity and he just pours gasoline on that fire. Any pride, any unrepentance, any injustice in us, any bias in us, 
He just feeds that pride. He is behind all of that. He is egging that on. But we can stand firm. Firm in the faith. It's important that we know that the devil is behind all evil and pride and sin and injustice. It's also important for us to remember the end of the story. He's a defeated foe that's just throwing a hissy fit. Because when you read the end of the book, when you read Revelation, he does all kinds of horrible things, but in the end, he's defeated. In the end, he is defeated. In the end, he is cast down and destroyed once and for all. We fight a real but defeated foe. We need to make sure that we are standing firm in the faith and not in ourselves because our enemy is real, but he's also really defeated. So when we stand firm in the faith, when we walk in repentance and humility, he has no ability to mess with us. I love this quote from Karen Jobes. She's a, a teacher, a professor of Old Testament theology. I just put it up here on the screen because I wanted you all to read it for yourselves. Speaking of First Peter and the threat of the Roman Empire, she writes, just the threat of Roman power would have been sufficient to annihilate Christianity had it been based on anything other than or less than the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know this when we study church history, but we see it today as well. Churches or movements or ministries that are built on making their own name great fall apart all the time. But those that stand firm on their faith in who Christ is and what he has done when they walk forward in humility and grace and repentance and the Spirit's power, nothing can stand against them. We see the gospel advancing and exponentially growing in places that look like Babylon from the outside right now. It's because the word of God and the spirit's power and the good news of the gospel cannot be stopped. Human effort always will. God's purposes will stand. Remember, this all goes back to the very beginning of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what a living hope looks like. It's guarded by Christ. It's a salvation that is fully ready to be revealed in the kingdom come. And when that's true of you, who can stand against you? Who can stand against the purposes of God Romans 8, Paul says it this way, but then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who 
justifies. Who will bring a charge against the elect exiles of God? Who will bring a charge against you and me? When we stand in Christ, when we stand firm in the faith, when we live like people who have a living hope because of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to end this week like we do every week on our feet, ready to obey God with our hands and our feet as we go out from here, as we enjoy cookies together, as we go about the holiday season, as we finish up finals, as we see friends and family, as we struggle, as we rejoice, as we reflect on what Christ has done for us. And we'll end with the benediction that Peter gives in this book. Would you pray with me? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.